The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. Thank you for joining Beside Still Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Beside Still Waters is the moment in our day when we seek stillness in God's presence, guidance from the Word of God, and grace to live by faith. This is the moment when we view horizontal living from the divine perspective. For the eyes of Jehovah run to and fro through the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. Now here's today's message. We hope it will be a blessing. Welcome to Beside Stillwaters. I'm really glad you could join me uh, again today in our podcast. We're doing a series on uh, Blue Sky Chronicles, which is a novel look at the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, particularly in the Gospels, as he is the Son of God come down to earth incarnate, and uh, how different that perspective must be, the God-man living in a cosmos that is uh, sin-cursed, uh, as we are told in uh, Romans chapter 5, as in Paul's letter to the Roman church, that as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all, for all have sinned, all sinned in Adam. And as you know, Adam was judged a sinner in the garden because he disobeyed the one express command of God and plunged the entire human race, the cosmos, into spiritual chaos. And so we are... Uh, we've been addressing the what is traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, in our last podcast, uh, we looked at the uh, what is traditionally called the Beatitudes. But uh, we, uh, by the Spirit's leading, took a slightly different approach because uh, none of us, in our own human capacity uh, and skill and resource, can live out those beatitudes. It's impossible. It necessitates the in-working, regenerative power of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives, similar to the way he caused Balaam's donkey to develop the capacity to communicate, or the way he strengthened uh, Samson to do extraordinary feats, or the same way he uh, imparted almost limitless wisdom to Solomon, such that he was the wisest man on the face of the earth at, at the time of his life, and certainly to this very day, none equals Solomon in wisdom and understanding. Well, we have come to uh, another uh, uh, portion of this uh, Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we are right at the point where the Lord Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He's speaking to his disciples. And he says, uh, If the salt has become insipid, meaning it's lost its saltiness, wherewith shall it be salted? It is no longer fit for anything but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot by men. 
And similarly concerning uh, the light, he says, A city situated on top of a mountain cannot be hid, nor do men uh, light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but upon a lampstand, and it shines for all who are in the house. And so he continues to say, Let your light thus shine before men, so that they may see your upright, your good works, and glorify your Father who is in the heavens. So ultimately, ultimately, the saltiness and the light, as we have been typified, we, his disciples, the devotees of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, have been typified thus, because we are intended to bring glory to God. That is the objective. And I don't want you to get lost in the responsibility. We need to know what the end game is. What is the point of this? We are placed in the midst of the earth of the world, of the cosmos. We have presence. We have influence. We affect the world. And the question is, the key question is, what happens in the cosmos when spirit, Holy Spirit, indwelt beings are mingled throughout the earth. It's like when you sprinkle salt through a salt shaker. You cannot predict where the grains will fall. And so, by God's divine placement, some of us have been sprinkled in homes or marriages, churches, in various communities, Some of us are in circumstances where there is conflict. We are engaged in conversations with a variety of people. We are engaged in some manner, at some time, in conflict resolution. We have leisure activities mingled among people, friends, relatives. We have a variety of responsibilities by virtue of careers or certain skills, places of employment. I mean, the list is fairly comprehensive. But we are placed where we have influence. And light shines. It could be a little light in a dark room. It cannot be missed. It cannot be hid. It shines. It illumines. When you're in a dark room, it, things are obscure. You can't uh, have a sense of where you are, what objects are near or far. Light brightens. It brings clarity. Salt, on the other hand, has a different sort of effect. It enhances flavor, as we well know. It preserves, it slows the decaying process. It can be used as a cleanser. 
removes stains, odors. It's a sanitizer. <laughs> really getting at deeply embedded germs. It minimizes pain from stings and bug bites, <laughs> for example. It's a deodorizer, a disinfectant. It also enhances healing. So salt is like a preventative. And light enlightens, brightens, illumines, brings clarity. And when the Spirit of God is in a man who is not resisting his working, but is taking time to meet with, to know, to be acquainted with God in a quiet place, a private place, a closet. It might be out in a park somewhere where you are alone, wherever it is. Take time to be acquainted with God, and it is the Spirit of God that will open the Word of God, illumining the pages, the teachings, the doctrines, and causing you and me to look at ourselves, to see ourselves, to see our world. And so we ought to allow the Spirit of God to do his very unique work in us, to change us, transform us, conform us to the image of the beloved Son of God, the Lord, Jesus Christ. But as we have influence and we also affect our community, worlds, relationships, homes, wherever, uh, there's also the converse, the antithesis of this influence is a grieving and a quenching of the working of the Spirit of God. Now, before we get into it had been said, but I say unto you, scriptures, this is necessary. This is necessary to have a clearer understanding of the working of the Holy Spirit and what his intention is in my life. <clears throat> when we grieve a person, we make them sorrowful. We affect them with sadness. We distress them. We offend them. And when we quench something, a flame, uh, or something that, that provides heat or, <clears throat> uh, or its effectiveness, we are extinguishing, suppressing, stifling. In this case, light, heat, warmth. And so, sad to say, we have great power, that is, Christians, because God has through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, sealed us with his spirit and caused him to set up home, his temple, in our mortal bodies. And as limitless as he is and as limited as we are, yet we can nullify, sadly, his influence. 
When the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 7, is joined to a human spirit, we are one. We are in Christ. We are comprising his body. And as such, with his presence unhindered, he is able to do, uh, figuratively speaking, what he did with Balaam's donkey. He caused and causes the impossible to be achieved. He caused this dumb beast to speak, communicate intelligently with this man, Balaam. Or at times where we are weak, he imparts himself as our strength. Similar to Samson, who was given superhuman strength. As Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus that we might be strengthened, they might be strengthened with all might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Strengthened. He himself is our strength. And like Solomon, who recognized that he lacked the capacity to rule this very special group of people, the nation of Israel, when given the opportunity, he asked for wisdom to execute his role as would be pleasing to God, and so too we, being enlightened in our hearts and minds because we are by nature dull. And so when we nullify the working, the power of the Spirit of God in us, we become flavorless salt and covered light. Flavorless salt and covered light. But when we are filled with the Spirit of God as exhorted, in Ephesians chapter 5, when Christ dwells in my heart by faith. Now, he dwells in my heart. Oh, but is his working in my heart? Paul could say so when he wrote to the Galatian church. And he said, I have been, in the original languages, it is I have been and I still am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Christ lives in me. Light, salt, Christ lives in me, and the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God. So many of us have a faith, but is that faith actively settled on, placed in, looking to the Lord Jesus Christ? More to say on that shortly. But as we continue in our conversation, when, one is, when, when we are filled and we are led into the cosmos, sprinkled like salt, willingly, with a servant spirit and childlike trust, God uses that person to have effect, light to illumine, salt to prevent decay in homes, churches, governments. Wherever we have been sprinkled. If you recall in, in a previous podcast when we looked at the uh, um, 
the part of the Lord Jesus' ministry, in fact, prior to uh, starting his official ministry, but after his baptism, we are told that he was led into the uh, wilderness by the Spirit. He was driven by the uh, Spirit into the wilderness, and (laughs) he went trusting the moving of the Spirit of God into the wilderness. He was, as a passenger, going to a new destination, willingly, by plan. He was like a slave, having no choice, no option, no will of his own, but driven to do a task in the wilderness. And he was like a child, trusting the providential care of his father. And so when we are to allowing the Spirit of God to have his way in us, We approach the incoming circumstance because when we arise in the morning, we have no idea what's coming to us today. But what we can be assured is if we have started our day with God, trusting his providential care, that he loves us with an everlasting love and that he promises and promised to cause all things to work together for good to those who are lovers of God. And so we become a challenge to the common knowledge, the time-tested knowledge, the rumored wisdom. And this is what the Lord Jesus is about to address. The generally accepted knowledge as it applies to behaviors and practices, adultery, divorce, swearing or swearing falsely. Just just the, the big items that we cannot miss. Of course, we're going to go into further detail in our future conversations, but this is really important. We're, we're talking about you know, the large items that, that every culture, every society struggles with. For example, in, in chapter 5, the 21st of the 26 verses, he deals with murder. Thou shalt not kill. You shall not do murder. A premeditated action to take a human life. I mean, that's like the ultimate of wrongdoing, when you take someone's life. But our Lord Jesus really expands on this, and we are now seeing the same act from the vantage point of God. You know, sometimes we ask ourselves, well, you know, why does God, why, why are the scriptures written the way they are? Some things seem so baffling. Well, one of the reasons why it is baffling, it ought not to be, but it is, is that we are looking at an action, an event from the human standpoint. And we forget that the author of the scriptures, whether or not one wants to believe it, is the Spirit of God. You are looking at the same event from the vantage point of divinity, of perfection, of holiness. And as such, we are compelled to reinterpret the act and look at it as well as look at ourselves from that vantage point. And so the Lord Jesus says, But I say unto you, everyone that is lightly angry with his brother is subject to judgment. I mean, 
Let's be clear. If you have a wrong attitude towards your brother or sister in Christ, you're in trouble. <laughs> because you are now looking at your attitude through the eyes of perfect holiness. He says you're subject to judgment. But he goes on to say, if you should say to your brother, Raka, okay? <laughs> well, in other words, we, we say it all the time. Oh, they're so stupid. You call your brother stupid. Now, he didn't say that you're saying this to his face. This is the disposition of your heart. You didn't take a life. He is looking at you and I from the inside. You call your brother stupid. Many of us have called people stupid in our minds. They said something in public. We sit there like, oh, that guy's so stupid. Guess what? He says, you are you. You might as well be called before the Sanhedrin. The religious ruling body, the governing body. He says, or if you should call your brother fool, just call a man a fool. You are subject to the pen penalty of the, the, the Gehenna of fire, the hell of fire. My friends, we have no idea what we're dealing with here. <laughs> The Spirit of God lives in us. God, the third person of the Trinity, has taken up residence in our lives, and many of us are callous in our perspective. We are really not careful, and we need to take stock of who we are and what we do, how we think, what we say in our hearts. If you remember, when, when the Lord Jesus was invited to Simon the Pharisee's house for, for a meal, and this woman, uh, I guess she was a woman of ill repute, I presume, came in and started to, to wash his feet with her tears and wipe uh, his feet with her hair. Uh, and Simon thought in his heart, well, if this man was a prophet, he'd know who this woman is. And the Lord Jesus responds to Simon based on the thought of Simon's heart. So guess what? We are not exempt. God is searching us with the lamp of the Spirit of God and seeing what is in me and what is in you. My disposition towards the Holy Spirit, not my brother, my disposition towards the Spirit of God is what is key right here. He is the one that is grieved or quenched when I take a disposition contrary to him towards my brother or sister. And what we experience is a sense of guilt and conviction that we are doing something wrong. And in that sense, we have already murdered the brother or sister. Why? Because we are looking at the wellspring from which murder occurs. By the time a person has taken a life, it's too late. The act has been consummated the disposition towards the brother or sister consummated in the heart. But the Lord Jesus goes on in verses 27 to 30, and he talks about the practice of adultery, and then in verses 31 to 32, uh, the practice of divorce. And, and this is really where it gets uh, prickly, if you will. 
because, you know, he says, you've heard it said that uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks upon a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he goes on to say, uh, concerning divorce, uh, it has been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a letter of divorce. But I say to you, whoever puts away his wife, except for the uh, cause of fornication, meaning uh, because of, of uh, sexual infidelity, makes her commit adultery. And if he marries one that is put away, he commits adultery. So we are talking about sexual relations for married individuals and perhaps not married either because we're talking about looking at a woman and lusting after her. Okay, But the act is consummated in the heart, the origin of it. The minute I have that I wish I could thought, you know, the quote, I wish I could, unquote, thought, that seals the action. Rather, to, to bring closure to this topic, uh, Paul takes time in Ephesians 5, uh, and many have quoted this. I've, I've heard it so often in, in my Christian life where, you know, the, the women might say, husbands, you know, love your wives, and, you know, the, the, the husbands retort, you know, well, submit to me, and, you know, they go back and forth. But what everyone seems to forget is that Paul lays out the very standard for the Christian life before you even ask someone to marry you. And everyone seems to miss this. In fact, if you were to go to, to uh, Ephesians 5, and I'm just going to touch on it at a very high level, but it's a worthwhile study, and it gives us the very basis for which a Christian must be living before they look at someone and say, would you marry me? Or before she says, I do. <laughs> and he says this as he wrote to the church in Ephesus, he says, be therefore imitators of God as beloved children. I am imitating the Son of God and walk in love. Now, let me ask you, if I'm walking in love, two people coming together, walking in love, do you really think they have time to be looking at someone that they would want to be intimate with that is not their beloved that they have married? But very often when that happens, because, you know, let's be real, not a whole lot of love going on in that home, sad to say. He says, walk in love as the Christ loved us and delivered up himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor, a sweet aroma. The very basis, the starting point, the out-of-the-blocks action is that the Christian is living to please the Father. And as such, the Spirit of God works in his or her life where another person becomes the beneficiary of that devoted life. If I'm walking in the Spirit, someone is always blessed. But the object of my obedience, the object of my affections, is the Father. And then he goes on to say, uh, in about verses 8 to 10, that we ought to walk, live, proving what is acceptable to God, what is agreeable. What does Jesus Christ agree with with my life? This is even before I've asked someone to marry me or to accept that proposal. 
Am I living in such a way that I'm allowing the Spirit of God as light to shine in me and examine me (laughs) before I go out into the cosmos to shine as a light or to become a preventative for a social and cultural decay? It's impossible. Why? I need to validate in my life what pleases God. That's a whole different approach. (laughs) I'm not looking at your life. I'm looking at my life in light of the word of God as is illumined by the spirit of God. And then he goes on to say at about verses 15 and 16 or thereabouts to examine oneself, to be circumspect, to put yourself within that, that zone and to look at you, look at yourself. Don't waste time. Look at yourself. (laughs) Are you and I in the will of God? That is the key. Walking in love to please the Father. Walking, living in such a way that I validate what Jesus Christ is pleased with. Walking in such a way that I know I'm in the center of God's will. And then he goes on to say in 18th verse and thereafter about being filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, submitting yourselves one to the other. Then follows exhortations to the married folks. So the point here is if if I'm concerned about, well, am I practicing adultery? Am I looking at another woman? Do I have sexually, you know, Origined thoughts about her, or even if I'm going through a divorce, the question I need to ask myself is, how am I living in relationship to the indwelling Spirit of God and towards the Father? How am I actually living? Am I walking in love, wanting my life to be a sweet aroma, incense before God? Am I living in such a way that my life, my actions, my thoughts, my doings validate that God is pleased? Can I say that? And you say, is that possible? Yes, it is, because Enoch had that testimony that he pleased God. (laughs) Read uh, Hebrews 11. He knew he pleased God. It is possible for the Christian to know that they're living in such a way that they please God. But the reason why we're not confident of that, because we know in our hearts, I'm doing what I want to do anyway. And then he gives exhortations to the married folks Husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. And wives submitting to her husband. The fear of God. See, people can live that way. But often we neglect the first four exhortations, which are the standard for the Christian life. But let's hurry on. And then he deals with swearing, you know, vows, oaths. <laughs> uh, or, swear, or, 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 you know, uh, False swearing. Either way, still the same. And so at about the, the 33rd verse, there around there. And again, you know, these are conversations we're having. So if I'm not being absolutely precise in, in, in identifying the chapter and verse, I want you to go back and look at it. Let the Spirit of God speak to you. Let him speak to you. And so uh, the Lord Jesus says as he's, you know, continuing with this uh, point of ministry to the multitudes, he says, you've been heard, it has been said by the ancients, you shall not forswear yourself, but render to the Lord what has been sworn, a vow. What we're looking at is a vow. You're taking a vow. And he says, but I say unto you, don't forswear at all, neither by the heaven, because it is the throne of God, nor by the earth, because it is the footstool of his feet. 
nor by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king, the millennial kingdom that's coming. Neither shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your word be yea, yea, yes, yes, no, no, yes or no. Anything more than that is evil. So what is he saying? Don't swear, don't listen. My friends, <laughs> Solomon, wisest man, has a few things to say about vows. And he says, Do, <laughs> defer not to pay it. Okay? Don't delay in carrying out your vow. God takes no pleasure in this. It's displeasing. Imagine that. God is displeased when I don't follow through on a vow I've taken. Now everybody's like, well, you know, I'm, this is the, the marital vow. Oh, not really. Not necessarily. And then in Ecclesiastes 5.5, 5, he says, better to not vow than to vow and not pay it. So you say, well, Christian, if you're... You know, are there other vows that we take? Well, <laughs> I'm going to speak to the Christian. You see, when we say, I've taken Jesus as my Lord and Savior, we, we, we just casually utter these words. We really do. What we are forgetting is we took a vow to embrace and love and own the Lord Jesus Christ as my only Savior the one whose blood has washed away my sins, the one who purchased me with that very blood. Paul could say to the Corinthian church, you are not your own, you have been bought with a price. He even referred to the church in the Old Testament in chapter 10 of, of the first letter to the church at Corinth, and he said that that church passed through they were baptized unto Moses. They passed through the seas, the Red Sea. They drank of that spiritual rock which followed them. Yet Jehovah was not pleased with the majority of them. And they died in the wilderness. And they became examples for us that we ought not to be lusting after evil things. <laughs> I mean, it's quite clear. God is holy. He's not going to tolerate <laughs> slack living. And it's not that he's just punitive. We forget. We forget that we are indwelt by the third person of the Trinity. He has taken up residence in us as his home, his temple, his shrine, his sacred place. The whole paradigm has changed now. Whereas before, I was sitting on the throne of my life. And when I took Jesus as my Savior and I owned him as Lord, I took a vow to live for God's pleasure. Have I been doing that? Have I been doing that? And so now, whatever that vow is, whether marital or otherwise, I cannot invoke heaven because that is God's throne. Don't be doing that, he says. I cannot invoke earth because that is his footstool. It belongs to him. I can't refer to Jerusalem because that is the, the, the city that has been designated to be the millennial uh, 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 capital 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you can't even swear by yourself because you have no power. We have no power to affect anything in our lives, whether to make our hair gray or black. We are powerless. In fact, further on, he's going to say, you can't even add, you know, when he, when he I think it's in chapter 6, uh, he talks about uh, excess worry about what we shall eat or drink. He says, you can't even add to your stature a cubit. Okay? You can't even do that. And then lastly, and perhaps I wouldn't say most importantly, but most commonly, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the universal approach for justice. Oh, yeah. You kill my cow, I kill your cow. You hit my car, I hit your car. You break my window, I break your window. You break my foot, I break your foot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just that simple. And yet the Lord Jesus at about the 38th verse, really puts his holy finger on this. He says, you heard, it had been said, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, but I say unto you, not to resist evil. Whoever strikes you on one cheek, or whoever shall strike, yes, on, one, on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. Now I know you are listening to my voice and saying, this is impossible. I want to be perfectly candid and transparent with you. I tested this. It is possible. I have been in a circumstance where I was struck in the face because of my Christian testimony. And I broke out in singing before the person. They were shocked. And then I turned to them the other cheek. And they struck it. I kept on singing, and I turned back to the original cheek that they struck first so that they may strike it again. And I turned the fourth time to the cheek that was struck second, and they struck it again while I sang to the glory of God. Yes, it is possible. These things are not impossible to do. And this, for me, was a three-year experiment to see if the Christian life can be lived to the letter in the power of the Spirit. And I'm here to tell you, yes, it can. But it necessitates a willingness to trust God that the very circumstance that you have now come into, it has passed through the filter of his love. It cannot touch you unless he, the God of heaven and earth, has allowed it. And the only reason he has allowed it is that you and I might have opportunity to experience his all-sufficient grace. What he was saying about the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, approached for justice, is to suffer the wrong, turn the cheek, allow the goods to be taken or destroyed. Doable? Yes. Possible to give a wrongdoer something they've not asked for? Yes, and that's what he's saying. Give the wrongdoer something they did not ask of you. The other cheek, the other cloak, the other mile, <laughs> the thing wanting to be borrowed. Give it to them. Hold on to nothing. And in doing so, oh, I love what the Lord Jesus says later on. 
about being the sons of your heavenly Father. This evidence is to a dark, sin-filled cosmos that here is a human being in whom the mighty God lives. Why? Because he's loving those who doesn't love him. He's loving those who hates him. He's loving those who curses him. And he counters their evil by non-resistance, but with blessing in the face of cursing, good in the face of hatred, prayer in the face of insults. Oh, my dear friend, (laughs) we have endeavored to draw near to God beside still waters. This is the catchphrase, if you will, for coming into God's holy presence and there beseeching him to work the impossible in our lives, transform us in this dark cosmos, in this fallen world. Prove in us by your grace that we can be changed. My friends, if you are the same as you were last year, if you and I do the same silly things, behave in the same beggarly way, we need to go before God and beseech him, change me, change me, whatever the cost, change me for your glory. I am in your presence. I am here beside still waters, waiting upon you. Change me that I, that my life may be a reflection of my Father in heaven. Oh, may it be so to the glory of God. Thank you for joining Besides the Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Besides the Waters is the quiet moment in the stillness of God's presence to receive guidance, light, and grace to live by faith. I hope you've been helped and encouraged to press on living for the glory of God. It has been a pleasure and a privilege to connect with you on this podcast. To stay connected, please follow Christian Javois on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you on the next podcast of Beside Still Waters.